Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Mara Thomas, Editor-in-Chief of UrbanHealthToday.com, part of the DocWire family of medical news sites, and I want to thank you for tuning in to Urban Health Weekly. Our goal each week is to keep you informed of the latest in health and medical news right from today's headlines. It's time to empower yourself with open conversations about your medical care with news that matters to you. So are you ready? Let's get started. Hi, I'm Tamara Thomas, and welcome to Urban Health Weekly, where we talk about medical news and health topics that matter to you. I'm here with Lou today. How hey. are you? Hey, how you doing? All good. <laughs> we're just going to jump right in. So uh, I want to talk about, um, we're going to talk about value-based care versus fee-for-service, which is the future of medicine. But first, um, increased public assistance tied to better cancer survival with Black patients. Overall survival in Black patients with cancer improved significantly, and racial disparities in cancer survival decreased with increased state-level spending on public welfare programs, a large retrospective review showed. Every 10% increase in public welfare spending was associated with an 8.6% improvement in cancer survival among Black patients, almost four times greater than the overall increase in survival when looking at all patients with cancer. At the same time, the longstanding Black-white disparity in cancer survival declined by more than 40% with the additional spending, reported Justin Barnes, MD of Washington University in St. Louis. The study added to existing evidence that investment in public welfare can mitigate structural racism and at least partially address social determinants of health, such as financial stability, education, place of residence, and insurance status, said ASCO Chief Medical Officer Julie Grollo, MD. Overall, the results showed that with every 10% increase in public welfare spending, five-year overall survival improved by 2% for all patients with all cancers, including a 2.6% improvement for white patients with cancer and an 8.6% improvement for Black patients. A 10% increase in public welfare spending would reduce the current Black-white disparity in cancer survival of 10.8% by about 4.6, said Barnes. The association between increased public welfare spending and improved overall survival for Black patients was consistent across multiple types of cancer, including solid tumors and hematologic malignancies. The improved survival reduced the Black-white disparity by about 40 to 50% across different types of cancer. Wow. do you have any thoughts on that? It just goes well, to show that the targeted spending, spending in the right places. Well, and, let's not get carried away here. Spending in the right places <laughs> leads to tangible and visible I, I think some good things were done, but I think that we, we need to get it a little bit, you know, we have to look at it at this more specifically what was done. Not yeah, that's a good point. 
just social welfare. I mean, that could be anything. No, yes. That could be anywhere from well, billboard well, I said, to... I said, I said targeted spending. Yeah. I didn't so, say just cut a blank yeah. check. So what I think, you know, what, what the research is showing in other fields is access to care. Yeah. And awareness to awareness that these things have to happen and preventative care, meaning getting to your doctor, not when you've got a stage three cancer, but a stage one or two uh, is extremely important in terms of survival. Um, and because this is now being effectuated, uh, also, you know, we're going to get into it uh, a little bit later on. Well, but because of the money, because of the money, you're able to, you're not waiting until you're arriving in pain to see yeah, the doctor. But you also, have the option to see the doctor This is not the sooner. only thing that's changed. And, and when a lot of things change at the same time, it's easy to claim victory. All right, so what do you think has changed? I think the fact that they, we now have the Affordable Care Act. I think the ACA. There's has, still a number of states that have not embraced numbers it. Numbers of states that have not, but there's enough states that have uh, gone the ACA route that you know it's given it's given that group of people um, healthcare or access to healthcare where they didn't have it before. And if we say, okay, is it is it we we realize that the numbers are getting better. But is it because of ACA? Is it because of, of spending in the social welfare program? Where, where is it? Yeah, they don't really from? say where the money, is it because people are buying better food? Is it because they don't, they, they can get to the doctor sooner? Yeah, they don't really specify. They just, it's kind and of- And you know what? Blanket. They don't really know. They just know that if you do these seven things, things, things get better. But which of the things that you're doing is the thing that's really causing the change. And I'm, I'm, I'm all for it. If we have to keep doing the seven things just to keep the people alive, that's fine. But if there's one in particular that's really working, maybe we could do more of that. Maybe we could shift the money there. It would be good to see what, what they found was working, what in particular they found was working because just to, to simply say, hey, you know, let's just flood the, the market with, with this money, which I don't think that's what they're saying. But they're not it's saying sort that, of, but you know how cheap I am, so it, I, I go it, crazy. Yes, it sort of reads that way, mm -hmm. like ju just because they're saying welfare, they're not necessarily saying money towards well, they, health. Well, they use that word welfare, which is a political trigger word. I wish they would have called it something else, and I wish they would have been a little bit My more specific God. in the art. Why but are you calling it a trigger word? I think it is. I think a trigger. How? I, I think a lot of people look at it and and and, and just have negative connotations towards the term. I, I think that you, you know. I, I think that they call it a different thing. I mean, it's still it's still programs out there that are helping the underserved, um, that are creating health awareness and are creating access to health care and access to other healthier environments but what are those programs that's what i'd like to know is exactly how that money was spent I, I i agree with you there i would like to see exactly where the money went to make the difference i think this shows that a difference can be made somewhere somehow and i'd like you know for the government or the, at least the state governments to take a closer look at this data mm -hmm. and figure out drill down and figure out where this money has spent, where in, in particular it made this difference, mm -hmm. and then emulate that. Mm -hmm. Emulate that because this clearly somehow is working. So, mm -hmm. but we just need to fine tune it. Right. Right. So it needs to be 
you know, better home yep. so that the money is spent carefully and it's spent strategically. Mm-hmm. Value-based care versus fee-for-service care. So now we're going to jump into the topic du jour mm-hmm. because like I said, we have an interview coming up. Mm-hmm. The healthcare revolution is already here. It's not the debate around Medicare for all, nor the question of whether to repeat or expand the Affordable Care Act. It's the continued shift from fee-for-service models to a system of value-based care. And while it's largely taking place behind the scenes, it's having enormous impacts on healthcare providers. The transition to value-based care revolves around a a recalibration of how healthcare is measured and how payments are reimbursed. The traditional model known as fee-for-service simply assigns reimbursements based on what services a healthcare organization provides. But in value-based service, reimbursement is contingent upon the quality of the care provided and it comes tethered to patient outcomes. This seemingly simple pivot of emphasis actually requires major changes on the part of healthcare providers. The old fee-for-service model encourages healthcare providers to fill as many beds and perform as many high-tech procedures as possible. That succeeds in driving up the cost of healthcare, but it doesn't improve patient outcomes. Value-based care, on the other hand, puts the quality of outcomes first, and by tethering reimbursements to this metric, incentivizes healthcare providers to prioritize patients. Both Medicare and private insurers have begun to adopt value-based models and providers along with the fleet of healthcare administrators have had to rethink how they can conform to the new system while meeting budgetary limitations. I definitely see this as the future of medicine. Whoa. Insurers want to rein in costs as healthcare grows out of control with the latest drug or treatment or therapy. All right, well, a couple of things. Uh, three things, okay. three things that I, I, I want to point out. Okay. Um, and uh, they may take a while, but I'll, I'll start off with the first one. If we all look out across the ocean, there's a tsunami coming, people. And that tsunami is not water. That tsunami is called the gray tsunami. Now, what is the gray tsunami? Baby it's the boomers baby boomers. Coming yes. The baby age. boomers coming and the baby boomers all going into Medicaid. Medicare, Where did you hear that term, the gray tsunami? That. It's a new term that's coming out. Now that I'm getting more and more gray, I want to be part of that tsunami. But um, <laughs> <laughs> so it's called the gray tsunami. I like it. Um, it's a term that's that's just been coined rather recently. Mm-hmm. And uh, that is, you know, just is indicative of the number of people that are moving off of, you know, their regular, you know, I got a job to, okay, now I'm retired. I go on a different healthcare system. That number is 18% a year. So every year, 18% of the people are moving. Forget about the people that are coming on the workforce. This is just people that are getting off the workforce into, into that. And 18% into retirement and into yeah, and care. Are moving in. So, so the Medicare's of the world and and the managed care systems are, are going up by 18% a year. Now, the only way that ACA can work, the Affordable Care Act can work, mm-hmm. and the only way that Medicaid and Medicare can stay solvent is if they go on a value-based system. They, they, they pretty much drive you there, and you don't know it as a, as a, as a patient, but your providers are being incentivized under those formulas. Now, where are the problems? It sounds great. It's already happening. 
Well, you don't have to do anything. It does it's sound gonna, great. Seamlessly, it's going to happen. You know, the doctors are going to become commissioned employees. Well, nobody said it is going to happen seamlessly. It is going to happen yeah. over time, though, and it's currently like in the works. And look, if the yeah. benefit means more people will be healthier, then it's mm -hmm. time that this bubbles out into the medical school curriculum so doctors wow. are learning not just how to treat sickness, because that's what they do, I, I, they treat sickness, but how to prevent it. Okay, my, my feeling is it's a psychology because doctors, many doctors are independent business uh, men and women. Not if you and, work in a hospital system. Well, more and more. They, they used to be termed like hospitalists and physicians used to look at themselves as hospital-based versus, you know, office-based that those lines are really, really starting to diminish. Most physicians are now affiliated one way or another. With a hospital. With, with some, well, with some sort of care system, whether it's mm -hmm. a hospital or an urgent care system or something like that. They, there's an affiliation there. The independent physician is very, very rare right now. It's, it's very difficult yes. to say that. Way. Yes, that's true. Um, and, you know, this goes into other implications like, you know, how they're going to pay their student loans and what kind of practice they're going to have and, and blah, blah, blah. But I'm not even going to get into that. In order for value-based medicine to work, it needs a, an information system. We call it an AI, uh, an informatics system. Let's call it AI for now because everybody's familiar Yeah, let's with call term. it AI. Mm -hmm. It needs AI that helps the physician manage it, keep track of things and see where deficiencies are. And to actually use your AI to talk to the provider's AI on the other side, just so you could use now your- Now, who's the your AI that you're Your AI is the doctor. I'm a doctor. Okay. I got all these patients and all these patients- Or an MP or a PA. Or a PA or mm -hmm. and whatever. Mm -hmm. I got to get everybody's information, put it into what's called metadata, meaning get everybody's numbers and put everybody's data together, submit that to the insurer for reimbursement. Because I'm not getting reimbursed anymore for Sally Jones coming into my office. I'm being reimbursed for watching over 600 patients, what the outcomes of these patients are, the overall health of these populations, or are they within norms? Now, how do I do all of that if I don't have an AI system? It's very, the answer is it's very difficult and it's led to a lot of incorrect reporting. So, you know, this is a good idea but we need infrastructure around it and we need the tools around it. And that's a very important topic that's gonna to come up more and more and more. Secondly, if we look at right now, what's happened so far with value-based medicine versus fee-for-service fee or any other type of bartering, I'll give you my horse if you take care of me type of medicine. Is yeah, that not so much? That doesn't that, that doesn't, doesn't go exist. on anymore. No, that doesn't. Oh, I used to do that back in the day. Be, bring the doctor. I'll bring you some a corn peach cobbler, some, or a baked fish. apple pie. Yeah, baked. Yes. Give me a baked no, pie. No, no, not anymore. It's done. Not anymore. They want greenbacks. I'm dated. I'm dated myself. Um, but what 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 the evidence is showing right now is there's been no significant difference, and that's one of the that's one of the. Am I but the lack of significant difference is because of how doctors are trained. Mm -hmm. They are trained well, exactly. to look for and treat 
a condition to con to treat a, a symptom. Right. You got pain. Let me prescribe something for you. But anyway, I had a great conversation with Bruce Crowther, former hospital executive and board member for Gray Matter Analytics about this topic. So let's take a listen. Hi, I'm Tamara Thomas, Editor-in-Chief of Urban Health Today, and I'm speaking with Bruce Crowther, who serves as President and CEO of Northwest Community Healthcare, Northwest Community Hospital, and affiliates in the greater Chicago area for more than 20 years. He's also a fellow of the American College of Healthcare Executives and past board chairman of the Illinois Hospital Association, currently sits on numerous boards and remains involved in healthcare data and analytics consulting as it relates to health equity. He's here to talk about value-based care and how it can help mitigate health inequity in hospital systems. So thanks for talking with me today, Mr. Crowther. It's a delight, Tamara. Glad to be here. Great. So let's get started. In your experience, what do you see or think is driving health inequities in healthcare? And why haven't they come to light before the pandemic? Um, well, it's a few things, but first we should, uh, let, let's establish that there really are inequities in, uh, in the delivery of healthcare. Uh, and I, if you asked any doctor or nurse, um, they see it, they wish it weren't there, but everybody knows that uh, people of color particularly fare worse than their white counterparts for health measures um, across the spectrum, infant mortality, pregnancy-related deaths, um, the prevalence of chronic conditions and just overall physical and mental health status. So it, it's there. Um, and uh, uh, I, I think COVID really brought it to, to light. Um, but uh, the, the drivers of this, I, I think, are, um, are a few. One, uh, at a very broad level, healthcare in this country, and it's one of the few. Um, you know, fully developed countries like this, but healthcare is a right, um, it, or is not a right, it's a privilege, which means you have to be able to afford it. Uh, and of course, there are special provisions that <clears throat> have been made. You know, Medicare is a big part of healthcare now, Medicaid um, and special social security programs. But uh, at the end of the day, it's a, uh, it, it's a privilege and, um, it, it, at some point, we're going to have to declare it a right if we're going to uh, solve these inequities. Uh, the other, a uh, couple of other, I think, root causes. Uh, one is uh, only 50% of Americans, and I haven't seen this, and I wish I, someone would do the study. I haven't seen it by, um, uh, by race or uh, um, income status but only 50% of uh, uh, Americans have a primary care doctor, which causes a really serious uh, misuse of the way uh, health care is, is accessed. Um, and then the, the final is that uh, we've historically been a fee-for-service cost-based system that's very, very expensive. And for 30 or 40, close to 40 years, we've been trying to get to something called value-based medicine or value-based care um, and really just haven't had the information systems to, uh, to uh, make it work. Uh, so that, that's, the, that's my thinking on uh, uh, what's driving these things. 
can can you just expand a little more? I, I'm just blown away by this information here that the insurance that the that healthcare is a right is not a right but a privilege, and that only fifty percent of Americans have a primary care doctor. Is that is that because um, of the lack of availability? Like there are some areas, for example, that are health deserts. Is that the cause or is it because people just don't have the money? For um, is it lack of availability of providers or is it lack of funds on the, on the part of patients? You know, if that's I something think, uh, yeah, the, the um, uh, and I think it's probably a little bit of, uh, of both. But a, uh, a health desert occurs when there aren't enough people there to support, financially support a, um, uh, a facility or the, the creation of health services. And uh, I know there are programs that, um, you know, are for free clinics and subsidized kinds of things. But at the end of the day, somebody is always paying that bill and there's never enough money for it. Um, and that's, I think, how we get to um, uh, specific locations that just don't have health care. Huh. Okay, well, aside from the pandemic, what else has helped to, to bring these inequities to light? Um, boy, I think, let me just speak a little bit about the pande uh, pandemic, because I think it really yeah. did highlight uh, uh, it, it just made this so obvious, uh, and I, and I think the, the reason it could make it obvious is that the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention were kind of in charge. They were making the rules, which allowed them to uh, collect the data on every patient, and so it was a very broad database. Uh, and just to give you an example, um, what it showed was Black Americans were close, a little, little more than 10% more likely than white people in the United States to contract COVID, but 240% more likely to be hospitalized and 70% more likely to die from it. Uh, the Hispanic population, 50% more likely than white Americans uh, to contract it, 230% more likely to be admitted to a hospital and 80% more likely to die. That is you know, real disparity. And it's the first time, the reason it was highlighted was we had the data. And uh, I, you probably you probably know that uh, one of the boards that I work with is um, Gray Matter Analytics. And um, for <clears throat> probably close to 40 years, I have watched attempts in the industry to uh, create databases that would highlight these kinds of problems and then track them over time uh, to give feedback on what's working, what's improving, what's not improving the situation. And uh, uh, Gray Matter is the first company that I've ever seen that's actually being successful at um, uh, being able to cr create the tool, if you will, that can drive uh, uh, changes in these kinds of situations both at a macro or a demographic level, but also at a micro level, uh, because uh, you know, there, there are reasons, I think, that some of these things happen. And, and as you pointed out, one is access, 
Um, one is the payment system. And uh, uh, I, I know in a few minutes, you'd like to talk about value-based care. And I, and I think we should, um, because that's a significant change in the payment system that only happens when you've got the, um, the measurement tool to uh, let you know what's working and what's not working and to identify problems as they occur. But let's stay with this for a second, because um, a lot of what was said in the media about the reasons for the high hospitalizations of Black Americans and Hispanic Americans was because they're on they're in jobs that uh, put them in the front lines. Um, I mean, is that is that what you're seeing? Because it, it sounds like if they're getting the rates kind of uh, very similar to um, their white counterparts, then their outcomes, one would think, should be similar, but that's not what's happening. So there's more to the story then than just the jobs they do, correct? Yeah, there's gotta be. I think the jobs um, are part of it, but I, I think um, that's a really broad generalization to say that uh, uh, Blacks and Hispanics are all, we're all in, are, you know, that much more in, uh, let's call them the high exposure jobs. I, I think there I is agree. an element of that. I agree. Um, yeah, but, but think too, and I don't know the data on this and would love to, to see it. <clears throat> um, what, is, what, is, what is the percentage of uh, people of color that have a primary care doctor? Uh, because if you don't have a primary, and I don't know it, but if you, if you have one and you get symptoms, you call your primary care doctor and your doctor assesses the situation and advises you on what to do next. And that could be stay home or it could be you better get to the emergency room. If you don't have um, a primary care doctor, then you don't have that resource to call mm -hmm. and you wait as long as you can. And then now you can't breathe. You, you've, you've really waited too long in most cases, I think. Uh, so you're headed possibly by ambulance, but you're headed to the emergency room. And um, that patient is getting there. You know, when we look at the data, um, that person is getting there. Um, much later in terms of the development of this disease right. without treatment than the person that didn't have a primary care doctor. And I really think that's a, uh, uh, a critical part of the equation that I've not seen any, any data on. So part of it has to do with what are the activities that you, you must do that might expose you more? And I, I think we've had a lot of press about that. Mm -hmm. But the other has to do with um, what are what are the resources available to you early on in the uh, in this disease to um, uh, to uh, handle it uh, as efficiently and as quickly as possible. So let's talk about value based care. What is it, and how do hospitals and and, and medical professionals yeah. use it? It's. Um, so value-based care is an alternative to what we've had in the past, which is fee-for-service. Um, and so in the past, you know, it's like anything else. Um, you go to a doctor, they send you a bill. You get, uh, you know, a, um, a test, they send you a bill and, and so on. So it's based on, on consumption and it's really built around um, 
fixing. It's it's a repair shop model, okay. Uh, but it's there's minim, minimal emphasis and minimal payment, in fact, for doctors. There's uh, uh, involved in uh, prevention. Value-based care is about uh, uh, keeping you healthy, and when you're not healthy, um, being able to identify the most effective way of getting you treated and well. And um, its its predecessor, you remember HMOs or health maintenance organizations, they were, I think, started right back in the 80s. And they've had a lot of starts and stops. And the idea, but it's a similar idea. Uh, the idea was you, um, instead of paying by an incident as an insurance company, as an HMO insurance company, I'm going to um, accept your payment as a premium, uh, as a patient. Uh, you're um, you're going to be assigned to a doctor. And uh, that doctor now has been paid. They don't get any more, any less. Uh, they've been prepaid more or less. And that creates an incentive on the part of the doctor to see you more often, do more wellness checks, and to um, both keep you healthy. And if they see some signs of something about to occur, uh, identify it early enough that it can be inexpensively taken care of rather than waiting until it's a full-blown uh, medical issue that requires a hospitalization. Clearly, the most expensive place to go in the health system is the hospital. And uh, within the hospital, it's the ICU and uh, in the operating rooms. And, you know, but uh, uh, the idea was to uh, be able to, to uh, keep you out of the hospital and keep you in focus on wellness. The problem, and I think the reason that that has largely not done its job, is that we didn't have the um, data management systems to uh, uh, really, for the doctor to really understand, to, to monitor you and uh, understand what's working, what's not, both for you as a patient, but in the, in the broader patient population that you're in charge of. And they really couldn't get a, a metric for, okay, am I improving the health of this population or am I just trying to be cheap? And uh, so, that is, has evolved into something called value-based medicine. And uh, value-based medicine has the same basic um, intent, but we're doing it at a time where the, uh, the, the data systems are improved. We have this thing called artificial intelligence, which allows, as you set up your, uh, your, your data management systems and your databases, uh, computers can actually collect data and see trends over time that, that don't require human intervention, so to speak, and can identify, here's what's going on with your population. Um, and I have seen this tried and tried so many times in my uh, 40 years of uh, working in the healthcare industry. And uh, I, I have to say, um, that what gray matter is doing is the first time I've seen it being done in a way that's uh, easily managed. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Have to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. At the hospital or insurance company level, um, and it, it, and it really works. It, it's uh, uh, it, it's really providing value, and so value-based medicine uh, is a, is really something. It's a payment system uh, and a patient management system that um, uh, it, it, with whose intent is to keep patients well, identify diseases early, but also identify uh, for different populations of patients. Um, you know, what, what's the, what works the best in this uh, for my patient? Uh, so if I get, uh, I don't know, I, I've had a, a couple of bouts with cancer and uh, yeah, boy, 20 years ago, we, we treated every cancer patient the same. And now we use uh, the genetic makeup of the, of the, of the patient to customize the treatment and the, and the treatments are so much more uh, effective. Um, value-based medicine has the intent to, to basically be able to do that, to identify it uh, and to make you healthier as a patient, make a population of people healthier and, uh, and do it at a lower cost. It just seems counter to the way doctors are trained though, doesn't it? Because they're trained to treat illness and disease. They're not really trained to prevent illness and disease. So, Boy, yeah, Tamara, that is a great insight. Um, we're, now, now you start to see the, the, the enormity of this shift. Um, yeah, you're, you're exactly right. Doctors are trained to, um, um, to fix things uh, and to, uh, to treat disease. And interestingly, um, they are, so the, the education system will have to change. And I'll, I'll give you a couple of examples. Um, under fee-for-service, uh, the more, the demand for services like surgeons, um, you know, procedure-based kinds of things mm -hmm. was, is very high. Um, so, in medical school, everybody is going into a specialty. I say everybody. Um, probably too many people are going into specialties. I want to be a heart surgeon, a general surgeon, a uh, brain surgeon. I want to be a radiologist. Uh, and and few people were going into, um, or not enough, primary care medicine. Um, and Absolutely because right. Over, because over time, that's where you make the money uh, doing these procedures not uh, seeing, seeing a patient in the office. Uh, and, you know, I realize that, you know, I, I said that 50% uh, of 
of people in the country don't have a primary care doctor, I also anticipate uh, and, and have for some time that there is going to be, as we shift into value-based medicine, uh, a shortage of primary care doctors and too many specialists. Um, so you, <clears throat> so if everybody decided I need a primary care doctor, I don't think there's, a, I don't think there'll be enough of them right now to, uh, uh, to, um, uh, to, to meet that demand. Now, having said that, uh, the medical education system can change. Uh, one of the things that um, was being taught for many, many years to uh, uh, physicians was uh, certainly, you know, the, the, uh, the phrase do no harm, but also to, we, we were teaching doctors to continue to treat. And um, that was, very often we'd do procedures on on patients that uh, were were too old or too sick to to handle the procedures and uh, the recovery from the procedure, even though it was an attempt to save them, was uh, harder on them than and they and they still passed away. Right. It was harder on them than uh, um, you know not treating them at all or just treating the symptoms, and uh, which they have been doing for years in Canada and Europe. Uh, so there was a specialty of medicine introduced probably 20 years ago in this country, but it's really quite prevalent now called palliative care, where, uh, there's a point where someone needs to make the call that, you know, you're going to live longer, uh, and more comfortably if we just, if we stop trying to cure you and manage your symptoms. Uh, so that you can be comfortable for the rest of your life. And uh, this, so there are doctors coming out now and most hospitals have them where uh, when, when that determination is made and there's a discussion with the family and so on, then you fall into the care of a palliation specialist. Uh, and those specialists didn't exist, uh, I'm gonna say 20 years ago. So, so the, the industry and the, the education system for physicians uh, is capable of changing. And, and I'm quite, quite sure that with the development of um, uh, the emphasis on value-based medicine uh, and the development of the, uh, the kinds of uh, systems and, and data management and artificial intelligence capabilities that companies like uh, Gray Matter Analytics have, um, I'm quite confident that that's going to drive the, uh, the, the change in the medical system. But we are clearly going to have to change that medical system uh, to uh, accommodate this. If I could just piggyback on something else you were talking about, the lack of uh, primary care physicians. The other thing, there was a big article in the New York Times, and I personally am a big believer in graduating more physicians of color, particularly into mm -hmm. the CP space. And what's happening is a lot of the doctors that are graduating can't afford to go into primary care because they're laden with so much debt from medical school that they just can't afford. They have to go into a specialty to be able to pay off. So they can't go back to the community and help like they'd like to. So that's another issue in terms of the shortage on primary care doctors. Yeah, so I just wanted to throw that in there. Now, how can the use of AI and value-based help reduce inequities in medicine? Um, 
Well, the use of artificial intelligence is uh, is going to give us the data we need to uh, get to value-based medicine. Um, but it, it, it's, boy, you, you just raised a really interesting sort of the chicken, which just comes first, the chicken or the egg. I'd love to see the um, medical education industry uh, reforming itself so that the uh, uh, you can, you know, you can make a living, you can pay off your debt uh, with, uh, as a primary care physician, we're going to have to create some kind of financial system or incentive to, uh, to solve that. Artificial intelligence is in, and these kinds of computer or uh, guidance systems is going to accelerate uh, the, uh, the movement away from fee-for-service uh, and toward value-based medicine. The, uh, the quarterback in uh, fee-for-service seems to have become the specialist, <laughs> or some would argue it. the quarterback is the, uh, the primary care doctor who just decides which specialist to send the patient to. But um, you know, the, the, the quarterback, in my view, has been the, uh, the specialist. In under value-based medicine, uh, using our artificial intelligence to, to monitor uh, the patient's health, to uh, to monitor the, uh, uh, the the either the improvement or the decline in health of populations, is going to be done by the uh, primary care doctor, and uh, I just really hope that we can figure out a way to uh, make that worth their while because it's it's going to be. You know, they need to be paid. Uh, there needs to be a financial incentive given the cost of medical school. Um, I, I mentioned earlier that um, you know healthcare is not a uh, privilege yet in this country; it's a right, and that that means that in part the education system uh, is also a privilege. You got to be able to afford it, and. Uh, if it were to be, and by the way, I spent a whole career arguing the other side, uh, arguing that <laughs> healthcare should be privately managed. And I just am frustrated and don't see it working. Um, so if we, if we were to, to make it a, uh, uh, a publicly funded uh, uh, right, uh, my guess is that we would also do something to uh, manage the uh, uh, or give the medical schools an ins a financial incentive to uh, graduate the, uh, the the right mix of doctors, if you will, uh, so that we did have more primary care doctors coming out and uh, and fewer specialists. That's another thing that artificial intelligence um, and these kinds of systems can help uh, predict. These are basically predictive models, and they over time they become very accurate. Uh, and they can tell us, you know, in 10 years, this is the mix of doctors that we need, not what we have today. And wow. you know, directionally, I can say uh, it's going to be a lot more primary care doctors and uh, a lot fewer, um, you know, orthopedic surgeons and uh, so on. So, uh, you know, specialists. And that's kind of the other problem, though, from, from where I sit, is that most people... Uh, most low-income people, most people, including low-income people, their first touch point is the primary care. They don't even get to 
the, the specialist, right? Most of the time they don't even get to the specialist because they can't afford the specialist. Um, so I'm curious how, how we overcome yeah. that. I, um, well, I, I see it a little differently. And I, um, I think the first touch point for everybody should be the primary care doctor. Um, they, yeah. Rather than, okay. Um, yes, yeah, so so everybody, should, everybody should have that. Uh, now, when the primary care doctor sends, says, you know, you need uh, surgery or you need to see a specialist, um, that, and you feel that you can't afford it. If you can't afford it, it means you don't have access to an insurance program, at least under the fee-for-service. Actually, it's going to be that case under value-based medicine. I'm just hoping that uh, value-based medicine, that we've evolved to a point where everybody, this is where I get the difference between a right and a privilege, everybody needs to have that coverage. Uh, there should never be a situation where I need a medical procedure and I can't afford it. I can't get access to it. Um, and, um, I, yeah, it, it's really interesting hospitals, most hospitals in the country are not for profit and in exchange for, which means they're, they don't pay uh, taxes and, uh, in exchange for that, they have a responsibility to take care of the people that, um, you know, need, need something and uh, don't have the, uh, the, uh, the means or the money to, to have that procedure. I, uh, I do think that, you know, that's, um, and, and the idea was the money you would have paid in taxes uh, is now not going to the government. It's going to cover the care that uh, you're going to provide to people that don't have the, the means. Right. Um, and that works in certain communities where there are very few people. But if, if you're, as you know, um, I mean, there are people without insurance and without means all over, but there are also concentrations of them, especially in urban areas. Right. Uh, and so if you're the hospital in that area, uh, you, can't, you can't cover the needs of everybody if you don't have anybody paying the bill, if you know what I mean. Right. And uh, that's the situation we find ourselves in. Uh, and I, I, that's why I, I really believe that... Uh, we need to find a way to make this a right where everybody has access, everybody has coverage. Um, otherwise, we're we're going to continue having these inequities. So, can you walk me through uh, exactly how? So, I'm a patient. I go to see the doctor, and this doctor um, is using AI and value-based care. And I come in, mm -hmm. my A1C is a little high. It's, I'm pre-diabetic. How does it, how does this then kick in? Um, well, in a few ways. One, um, uh, that's great that you went to uh, your doctor and you're pre-diabetic. So he or she is going to put you on a, um, a preventive plan. They uh, might send you to a, a diabetes uh, physician. Uh, they may change your diet. They may change your exercise routine, but they're going to, do their best to uh, keep this from progressing. And the systems that they have in place are uh, capable of saying, okay, for, for someone with uh, 
uh, you know, at this stage of being pre-diabetic, uh, these are the, th and they're going to, you know, they'll input other characteristics that you have. Um, you know, I, I know you're not, but you could be obese or overweight. You could um, not have access to uh, healthy food. You, I, you know, it could be a lot of things. And um, uh, these kinds of systems over time will tell you, okay, these are the things you need to, uh, to know and uh, care about. So the artificial intelligence can not only um, help at the physician level, uh, but again, at the population level, the, um, uh, and it'll be a reference point, you know, physicians have access to, uh, they're smart people. They've been trained to, uh, handle pre-diabetic people. Mm -hmm. Um, and so they probably don't need this as much, um, to, to give you a diagnosis and a uh, treatment plan, um, over time, though, you're going to be in their database, and they're going to have a better sense of uh, what's working, what's not working, what do you respond best to, what don't you respond best to, and uh, you know it, it, it will become a uh, an integral part of, of care. I, I should say most doctors have a uh, uh, well, many doctors have a computer system uh, that does not include artificial art. art um, yeah, artificial intelligence, AI, uh, and they do very well uh, on a patient by patient basis. It's, uh, but when you start managing um, uh, populations, uh, that's where you have the opportunity to see that, uh, okay, I'm in a group of physicians. And if we look at how each of us is treating our um, pre-diabetic patients, each of them will be slightly different. Um, the primary care doctor may be one guy, maybe, you know, he's managing it himself. Another guy has already sent you to uh, a diabetes specialist and they're going to be able to compare the outcomes and identify that, you know, uh, this woman physician over here is doing it different than, differently than all of us. And she's getting consistently better results. And so as a group, let's migrate to what she's doing. Um, that's really where these kinds of systems, um, uh, become uh, really helpful at a position level. It, it, they're they're identifying best practices for you and uh, making you aware of them as uh, as they collect data on all of your patients over time. So this is something that physicians have to sort of buy into, right? They have to um, request this. Is that how it works? Well. Um, or they have to uh, agree to be, you know, to use it. Or qualify but, it. Okay. Yeah. So the, the big adjustment in this arena for physicians, I think, occurred quite a few years ago when uh, they um, needed to start using computers. Uh, and it's just because we had a generation of doctors that didn't have computers when they started, and now you're making me change. Mm -hmm. um, so we've moved past that. You know, the, the people coming out of medical school now are all really savvy about computers. Um, and this, I think, is looked at as a very sophisticated tool. Uh, I can't imagine that uh, they wouldn't want uh, artificial intelligence. But that's kind of at a physician preference level. When you uh, shift to taking contracts, you know, physicians have been 
you don't see many solo physicians anymore. Uh, you see groups right. and groups sign contracts with um, insurance companies and with Medicare and with Medicaid. And increasingly those insurers are moving away from fee for service and moving to a value-based kind of system. Okay. Yeah. So now, okay, now you've written a contract and <clears throat> you're going to be paid on um, some metrics around the health of this population. So you really want this artificial intelligence kind of system. Uh, you, have a, you have an incentive to, uh, to use it um, so that you're able to interpret best practices. You're able to uh, see how your cost profile versus outcome is uh, is working relative to others and you're going to maximize your uh, your income your payments that way um, so that that's really I, I don't think this is a tough conversion they're already uh, I'm going to say taking value-based contracts uh, but everybody's still trying to figure out how they work because the system everybody doesn't have the system available to them yet and um, for a system like this that that works they have some subset that uh, is, you know, clumsy, new, hard to use, that kind of thing. But artificial intelligence is uh, really developing at a, a fast rate. And uh, um, yeah, I, I think if you give it 10 years, this is going to be a uh, very popular way to go. Keeping in mind, and I, I'll use the gray matter analytic experience. Mm -hmm. um, they're selling the, this not only to doctors and hospitals, but they're also selling it to the insurance companies. So if I'm writing a contract, I'm a physician group, let's say, with an insurance company that has this, uh, I don't want them having all the data and interpreting it and basing their payment to me on it without my having it and being able to manage my, uh, uh, my practice with it. I also don't want to and this has happened for, for years. I don't want to agree to a certain payment without having the data to support that I can um, manage this population of patients with that amount of money. And, and so they've been kind of contracting blindly for a number of years. And the, this movement is, is, I think, making them a little uh, better informed when they uh, negotiate with insurance companies and write contracts. So do you think that many organizations will fully embrace this model of care given the challenges we've just discussed? Or do you um, yeah, I, I do. I, I really do. I, uh, the challenges we're talking about are um, transitional challenges. Um, yeah, but if at the, at, the, at, the, at the base of it is a change is a change in the way that um, Healthcare is paid, and um, you know the, everybody will eventually get in line and follow the money, and that seems to be the way of it in this country. So if we if we're switching from fee for service over time to value based medicine, and there are the tools available, which were there they were not when they, this movement started thirty or forty years ago, but they are available now to um, uh, know. Uh, what you need to know to manage under a value-based system, um, then yeah, I think this is this is catching on, and it's uh, it's going to be the way medicine is uh, is paid for. 
uh, going forward. But all of these transitions, you know, they do take time. So this isn't something that's going to happen just overnight. Um, it's going to happen. You know, it's a, you know, it's a it's a decade kind of thing. Um, and you know, keep in mind that. Um, so for positions that are in the field right now, even though they have computer systems, they probably don't have artificial intelligence yet. But uh, as artificial intelligence kinds of capabilities are developed, uh, the medical schools will be teaching, uh, you know, this is how you manage when you have this tool available to you. So we, in order to completely make the transition, you've got to have a generation of doctors that come out that have been trained on these kinds of tools and incorporating it into their understanding of how a, uh, the practice of medicine should work. And also um, on preventive medicine. Well, that's a huge part of this. Yeah, this is really at its base, a, uh, a return to prioritizing uh, preventive medicine as you know, more important than, uh, than cure. Uh, and I can't say more important, but you know, somewhere along the line, preventive medicine was lost as a priority. And I'm pretty sure it's because uh, you, you couldn't make much money doing it. Um, I, I remember uh, when I was uh, running Northwest Community Hospital, we used to try to set up free clinics to, uh, and this was in the HMO days, uh, because it was, you know, we knew that there were patients that we were going to take care of one way or the other. They didn't have access to insurance, uh, and it was cheaper to give them free clinic care and keep prevent them from getting sick than it was to have them show up in the ICU, uh, go to the I'm sorry, show up in the emergency room, go to the ICU, you know, and, and pay the cover the cost of uh, of that experience. So, you know, there there was a um, a financial model that would support even free preventive care. Um, but we also knew that, um, you know, the insurers didn't really pay for it, um, you know, even for the insured people. Uh, it was, you know, it's, it's a low margin kind of, um, or part of the, uh, the business of uh, uh, delivering healthcare. So I hope that's, I think this will put that back front and center where it should be um, and uh, you know realign I guess the uh, the financial system with uh, with the incentives uh, which in turn will uh, uh, probably I hope create more uh, primary care doctors that are uh, able to um, practice preventive medicine rather than uh, uh, everything being a repair so if this is a 10-year strategy a 10-year plan um do you think that there's anything else that will happen in the near future to help mitigate inequity or are we sitting on 10 years before we see those changes in healthcare? well when i say 10 years um I think this well, is changing. Me, in terms of it's got to turn over, it's got to get into the medical schools. The AMA has to right. embrace it, make it part of yeah. the curriculum. These new doctors have to embrace it, and and the thinking has to change. So I get that. So I understand it's going to take about that time, but inequity, inequity rather, is a problem today, and so I'm wondering if there's anything else that we can do to, I guess, get there 
faster. And if there isn't, you know. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, um, I think the most important thing to realize is that value-based medicine contracts are being written today mm-hmm. and they're replacing fee-for-service contracts today. So the incentives that are required to make this change are already happening, which and which means the changes are already happening. Um, so, you know, whether we have a, uh, you know, over 10 years, I, you know, this is, there's no data to support this, but just as a mental model uh, or a directional model, you know, uh, I don't see we going from zero to 100% in 10 years, it's 10% each year, um, or maybe it's, you know, 5% this year and, uh, you know, 15% next year, you know, and so maybe it increases at an increasing rate, but um, I, I think we're, we're in the movement now. And uh, I, I think it's gonna, it's going to solve a lot. Keeping, it, keeping in mind going and going back to the uh, 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 COVID situation, I, uh, boy, I hope this system align, you know, starts to improve the kinds of uh, hospitalization and death rates. Uh, and COVID's going to be around for a while, I think. Um, I, I hope that starts to improve as we have the data real time. Um, and as we begin to see that, you know, get to the underlying root causes of you know, what is it that, that uh, makes a, a black or Hispanic person more likely to be uh, hospitalized for, uh, for COVID? You know, clearly it's, you know, th- there's the kind of work that's done, um, but there's gotta be something else. And, you know, I, my theory is that it's uh, the availability of primary care um, so that you have a, a, a doctor and a resource to consult early on uh, but there might be more to that. There might be, I don't know, there could be genetics there. Um, and uh, But these AI systems, these artificial intelligence systems are capable of, uh, of um, learning that over time and you know, starting to, to narrow the gaps and, and get us aligned as we should be. Uh, the results for everybody should be the same. And um, uh, I, I'm really excited about the potential that uh, that this has for making those changes first recognizing the problems and as and recognizing them as problems and then uh, understanding the underlying causes and uh, so that we can make some changes and and, uh, and effectively make medicine not only the right that it is but uh, the equal right that it is well said. Mr. Bruce Crowther, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate oh, this education. That's been a pleasure. Anytime. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Urban Health Weekly today. I hope you'll join me and my friends next week so you can stay informed and inspired to take control of your health. See you next time. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues 
your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. 